Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be discussing a topic that is very close to my heart, and that is the subject of abortion. Now, those of you who have read my book or any of my columns will know that I've worked in the pro-life movement for about 10 years now, and I actually joined the pro-life movement after seeing a video in university of what abortion looked like. And even though I grew up in a pro-life home, I'd never really fully conceptualized what abortion was. And seeing, seeing a video of a baby getting pulled apart completely changed my life and brought me into the pro-life movement. And I've actually had occasion over the last several years to see what abortion looks like up close. In fact, I've, I've actually seen a little boy who was killed by an abortionist and, and he was actually he was actually perfect looking. A, a pro-life activist in the United States um, had, had taken him out of a dumpster. Think about that. A, a little child tossed into a dumpster and the back of his skull was stabbed in where the where the abortionist had killed him. And and honestly, it's, it's extremely hard for me to explain to people who have never really seen the reality of abortion why this issue is, is one that is so incredibly important. But once you've come face to face with one of the victims of abortion, you can never truly think about the issue again. Because abortion isn't some abstract social issue. It's not some abstract religious issue. Abortion really is about a genuine and horrific injustice perpetrated against real children who desperately need our help. And obviously, abortion is a topic that we're going to be discussing quite frequently uh, on this podcast because life and family and stories from the front lines of the culture wars are the focus of this podcast. And I wanted to start off that discussion by talking to somebody that I've known now for a couple of years, and her name is Carol Everett. Some of you will probably recognize her name from the documentary that came out a few years ago called Blood Money, which was actually based on her book, Blood Money, Getting Rich Off a Woman's Right to Choose. I read this book when it first came out years ago, and it was called Scarlet Woman, I believe was the first title. But anyways, the book uh, details Carol Everett's experiences inside the abortion industry, because she had an unplanned pregnancy at 16. I'm not going to give away too many of the details because she's going to share those stories with you herself. And then she spent six years selling abortions to other people, running uh, several major abortion clinics in Texas. And Carol Everett's testimony, uh, Carol Everett's descriptions of what go on inside the abortion industry are truly illuminating. And I'll, I'll even say truly shocking. Sometimes I think it's impossible for me to be shocked at the horrifying things that take place inside the abortion industry. But some of the stories that Carol Everett tells are, are genuinely heart-wrenching and are genuinely shocking. She now actually, after exiting the abortion industry years ago now, she works trying to ensure that women have other options, obviously. So she works with the Heidi Group, which has a network of life-affirming nonprofits right across the United States, and they offer expertise also in media, fundraising, strategic planning, and she actually uses what she saw inside the abortion industry uh, to inform expert testimony that she gives in courts right across America, as well as 33 state legislatures so far, as well as Congress. And so Carol Everett has used her horrifying experiences inside the abortion industry 
uh, to arm herself as one of the most effective pro-life activists that she can be. And so I've spoken with her before. I actually recounted her testimony in my 2017 or 2016 book, pardon me, The Culture War. And Carol Everett agreed to come on this podcast and to share her story with us. So how did you end up working at an abortion clinic, for starters? I started working at an abortion clinic in a in a quite desperate well there were I was desperate to justify my own abortion but I worked for a man who owned abortion clinics and I was in sales I was selling medical supply sales and um actually he called me one day and asked me to go over there and run that thing for the day and I never left I just stayed um but it was a place to justify my abortion on a daily basis So your story starts with with an abortion that you had when 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 was this uh, two weeks after Roe v. Wade. I was pregnant with my third child, second marriage. Uh, there'd been an agreement there'd be no more children. I never expected to get pregnant. Uh, my husband, uh, my choice was my husband or my abortion or my baby, and I chose him, sadly, and uh, the moment the anesthesia wore off, my very first thought was, I'm a murderer. And, uh, and my life started a downhill spiral from that point and and raged on for 13 years before I came to Christ. So this man you worked for, just kind of give us a, give us a bit of a, a chronology to help us understand your story before we talk about what really went on inside the abortion industry. I was working for an a, a, a orthopedic surgeon I had um, I was the office manager, but I also scrubbed with him. I went to surgery with him, and um, I was, you know, he was a very powerful man in the town, and I had a lot of ex- responsibility. And when I found myself pregnant, I had that abortion, never realizing that it would change my life the way it did. I actually expected just to go back to normal and everything be the way it was before, but nothing worked, and. I wound up leaving that job, but um, the man who sold medical supplies to us offered me a job after. I, he said, I can't hire you while you're working here, but leave and I'll hire you, and he did. And I was the first woman in medical supply sales in the Dallas area. And, of course, there was a novelty of that, so everybody would see me. It was kind of, you know, a, fine, a fun job. But as my life fell apart and my relationship with my husband was over, I, I resented the fact that he... I felt like he made me have the abortion, and I um, I really took it out on him and just wanted to get away from him. So we were divorced, and then, then here I am working in medical supply sales, and uh, the man who owns the business sees these businesses coming online that are very, very profitable. They don't ask questions. They don't ask anything. They just pay top dollar. He investigated and found them to be abortion clinics and quickly opened four of them. And um, he had trouble managing them, and one day the call came, would you manage this clinic for a day? And I went over and walked in, and I very quickly saw that there were small changes that could be made that could increase the business. Right. And so I started doing that, and they were mostly changes on the telephone, because the telephone is the first point of sale. And so I changed the script. And started talking about, you know, made it a sales script, selling the procedure, selling the procedure as 
the way to end all your issues. Any problems, anything are just wiped away if you have this abortion. So um, I developed a script that overcame every objection with, yes, you can have an abortion. Everything's fine. And come on in, get your money. We can take care of it. And more than doubled his business in about four months. But he wouldn't share that money with me. So I took his best abortionist because, after all, I'd recruited him. And um, we started our own abortion clinics. In the first month, we did uh, 45 abortions. In the last month, we did 545 abortions. We worked out of a single telephone answering bank. And our plan was to use this bank to book all the abortions. What we would do is open a new clinic as soon as we saw 200 abortions coming in on a road, on a highway, like from East Texas. We would pop open an abortion clinic. It would pay for itself in the first month. It was a cash cow after that. And we planned to open uh, five. We had two open. We planned to open three more in the next year. But you have to market abortions. And uh, we marketed abortions through schools. Right. Yes, word of mouth is the best way, but if you can get into a school, you know, our goal was three to five abortions between the ages of 13 and 18 from every girl. So if we get in those schools, start breaking down the natural modesty, get them to laugh at their parents and their values, they would come along with us and uh, get birth control, and we would give them a low-dose birth control pill we knew they would get pregnant on. So we how, gave them a birth control. How, how did you get into these schools? At that point, they called us. They asked us. We didn't have any trouble getting to the schools at that point. Now we do, but then we didn't. Right. So, yeah. And low-dose low birth control, like, was this, this is just, what, what's it generally used for? You you specifically had those in order to ensure that women would get pregnant faster? What you do is you give them a low-dose birth control pill. You know, birth control pills started out at 10 milligrams, 5 milligrams, 2 milligrams, and now they're a percentage of a milligram. But they have to be taken accurately at the same time every day in order to provide any level of protection. And that's the pill we use because we knew, for instance, these teenagers would do nothing at the same time every day. We knew the pill wouldn't work because she wouldn't take it accurately. And uh, we could look at the statistics and tell that any time we went into a school, the pregnancy rate or the abortion rate increased. They were coming to us, but you put them on that birth control pill and the next thing you know, she's calling you because she's pregnant. So what was working inside a clinic like? There's there's a lot of people who have been in abortion clinics, but there's very few people who have been where you are, which is on the operating side of things. So you worked first, you said the first thing you worked on as, as somebody working in the industry was the telemarketing side of things. And you pioneered some of these tactics, did you not? Yes, I did. I, I changed the tactics, and then what happened was the other abortion clinics found out what we were doing and started changing the two. And uh, yes, you just developed. I developed a script that overcame every objection, and you walk her through. You never say baby. You never say birthday. You say you use fear tactics. She says um, she calls and confesses. I think I may be pregnant, and then you say we can take care of that problem. And then there's a script. For each one, there's a literally a script, a single sheet of paper with the blanks to fill in for each one. Each phone call gets its own script, so you don't look, forget anything. But we can take care of your problem. No one needs to know what's the first day of your last normal period. She may or may not know that. She figures it, gives it to this person that calls themselves a telephone counselor but is really a salesperson, trained to telemarketer, as a telemarketer. And... um 
So she figures the date, gives it to the so-called counselor. A counselor puts it on a wheel designed to calculate the birth date of the baby, but she doesn't talk about birth date or baby. She says, you're eight weeks pregnant. Now think about that. What did she do? She confirmed this young woman's worst fear, her pregnancy, and she's talking to her over the phone, and then the girl is asked, is this good news or bad news? If it were good news, she would not be calling an abortion clinic. It's bad news. And when she says bad news, this counselor moves right in because now she wants to identify the fear. Why the fear? She's going to use it to reaffirm that abortion decision anytime that girl moves away. Right. Your parents don't have to know. Even in states with parental consent, they have ways around it. And uh, you know, parents don't have to know. You don't have to miss work. You don't have to miss the real team. The girl doesn't know what they're looking for, and she blurts out the fear. And now she has armed that telemarketer with everything she needs to sell that abortion over and over again. And then, come on in, get your money, come on in. And if she says she doesn't have her money, you help her get it. You say, borrow money, get five, ten, twenty dollars from each friend, pay them back, and you know, get a job, pay them back in six months or a year. But borrow the money, get it, come on in. Now they're doing something different. Now they have a uh, a donor who will pay a portion of abortions if the woman is truly in need. But then we didn't, so it was come on in, and then you get the appointment made as soon as possible because the longer she thinks about it, the more likely she is to not show or to talk to somebody else who will talk her out of it. So get your money, come on in. Can you come in in the morning? Can you come in today? Can you come in in the morning? And then... Greet her at the door. The telemarketer is supposed to greet her at the door and act like she's her friend and take her back and check her through. And then she goes back for a pregnancy test. She's allowed to watch her pregnancy test become positive or negative. If it's positive, they grab her elbow, the bony part of her elbow, and say, see there, there it is, you're pregnant. Let's just do it right now, okay? And she goes up front devastated, but she goes up front and pays before she moves any farther along. But a huge percentage of these girls are not pregnant. And if you look at our pregnancy centers today, you can tell that they're not pregnant because about 30-plus percent of the women walking through the door of our pregnancy centers today are not pregnant. In some cases, as high as 70%. But you take this girl back for a sonogram. Now, ultrasounds were really new then. Right. People didn't. It wasn't like everybody knew what they were. So you take her back to see if she what she knows about sonograms. You put her on the table doesn't make any difference. They're still doing the same thing. They find a blob in her abdomen. You know, I could put you on a table and you could be pregnant because all we look for is some gas. You know, just a blob. And you yeah, say, yeah. see there, there it is. You're pregnant. And she doesn't know what an early pregnancy looks like. And uh, grab her elbow. Can you just, why don't you just do it today? And the sad thing about that is we don't know how that figures into the infertility rate because the abortionist has to have a specimen, so he scrapes out more of the lining of the uterus. He does his own tissue check on that one. We don't know how many of those women remain beyond getting pregnant again. But we do have a high rate of infertility now. We know that. And then, anyway, it makes no difference at that point. They're lined up for counseling. And the counseling is just an extension of the sale. They ask two questions. Every woman asks the same two questions. She asks, is it a baby? We trained our people to do, say what was comfortable for them, but we would say, no, you know, it's a glob of tissue, it's, it's a, a blood clot, it's, it's not a baby. And yet we knew in the back room that we had to go back there, and as early as an abortion could be done, 
we had to reconstruct that baby to be certain that the doctor had gotten all the baby's body parts. So we knew what we were doing. And um, then the second question is, does it hurt? And you you open and close, the counselor opens and closes her fist and says, no, your uterus is a muscle. It's a cramp to open it, a cramp to close it. And she keeps opening and closing her hand. And when the girl starts opening and closing her hand to see if it hurts, you got her. She She believes you that it's not going to hurt. Right. The truth of the matter is it is very painful because it is an unnatural interruption of one of God's processes. You can't just break into a very early pregnancy uterus for sure is really tight and hard to dilate, but it's unnatural. It's unnatural and it's very painful. And uh, then after the procedure, usually somebody will go in and hold her hand and talk to her through the procedure more to keep her quiet than anything else. But sometimes they don't do that. And sometimes there are two of them in there. If it's a big baby along a big baby abortion with no anesthesia, there'll be two people in that room because, first of all, she's going to have a lot of pain and she's going to be moving a lot, and the doctor's not going to be happy with that. But after the procedure, she's taken to um, the recovery room, and that's kind of the resale room. That's where they get her in there, get some juice in her, get some crackers in her, get her feeling better, check her bleeding, ask her what kind of birth control she wants. She's going to say, I'm never going to have sex again. And they say, no, 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 that's today, but start taking these pills on Sunday. You'll never have a period on the weekend that way, blah, blah, blah. And they give her another low-dose pill prescription, and she leaves. And sadly, too many of them have problems. But the truth of the matter is we need to go back to the abortion room because the doctors are working out of each doctor's working out of two rooms. And he goes into one room and does that abortion. He walks across the hall. No operative notes, no surgical scrub, walks across the room, re-gloves, and starts abortion number two. At the end of the day, he'll sit down and write in all those charts, and no doctor in the world can remember everything that actually went on. Right. That much later with 30 people or whatever they've got that day. How many abortionists did you have in the clinic? Well, we had nine, and we worked two and three at a time. Right. Yeah, we, we like to get it done and get out of there, and so we got as many in as we could. Many patients in as we could, and as many doctors in as we could. So, and um, then the big baby abortions are first because they bleed more, lose more fluid, and she has to stay in recovery longer. And you do those up front, so you've got them out of the way, and they're in recovery all day. And then you're doing your first trimesters. What age is big? Say that again. What age is big? Oh, we went, uh, the biggest baby we ever aborted or killed was 32 weeks. If we could get the right sonogram size on there so it didn't look like we were doing anything over 24 weeks, we'd do anything. But that woman couldn't even, she lost so much blood, she couldn't even stand up. Her blood pressure went to zero every time she stood up. She was hospitalized. And that's another thing. You know, one out of every 500 of those women, the last 18 months I was in the building, had a hysterectomy or a colostomy, or, and one woman died. Is that normal? Never, is that, are those rates normal for abortion clinics? I think they are for second and third trimesters. Right. Yes. But but they're, you'll have first trimester problems, too. You're going to be, you're going to have problems when you're doing, doing unnatural surgery in a dirty environment. 
and she is in a dirty environment. They're they're not clean. They're not abortion clinics. I don't even care. In the best regulated state, does not compare to a surgical suite. They're just you know they don't. In Florida, I don't even know if they have have to have hot water right now. But you know they. Let's talk about instruments for a minute. Yeah. You've got 21 sets of instruments. you got 50 patients today. Okay, you've got to, you're supposed to have sterile instruments. So how are you going to do this? Well, you're going to do the first 21 and everything's going to be fine. But they're going to be turning that sterilizer. Now, that sterilizer will only hold two sets of instruments at a time. So the first two, get back in there. You've got to bring that sterilizer up to 270 degrees. You've got... If you're going to sterilize them, you're supposed to sterilize them for 20 minutes. Then you have to let the sterilizer go down. You have to cool the instruments, and you have to repeat it. I will tell you, by the end of that day, and somewhere around the 30th abortion, the abortionist is using uh, cotton gauze pads because the instruments are so hot, he is searing that woman's cervix when he is sterilizing, when he is dilating it. Because that instrument is so hot, it's cauterizing her cervix. It dilates it, but who knows what kind of damage that does. He can't hold the instrument. It's so hot. What is it doing to her cervix? By the end of the day, they're putting the instruments in Cydex, which is supposed to sterilize them, but you're supposed to leave them for 20 minutes plus. They're just dipping them in there and getting them out. The instruments are not sterile at the end of the day. And, and what, that, there's what, just what, 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 no what, way. What would the impact of using instruments that haven't been sterile on multiple patients on that sort of a surgery be? Well, today, with all the AIDS and STDs and things, it would be devastating. I can't imagine what it could be because then we didn't have that kind of, you know, truthfully, we did not have that kind of STD rate. We didn't have AIDS. We weren't talking about AIDS yet. But it cannot be good. It has to, just simple infections have to be passed on. But see, one of the things, one of the reasons we don't know much about that is they give her a prophylactic antibiotic in the recovery room. She leaves that abortion clinic with antibiotic. So I don't know, but it's it cannot be good. And if for no other reason, you would think every state would regulate abortion clinics to the point of sterilizing instruments properly. Yeah, yeah. So what was it like to work and manage an abortion clinic? You've talked about, you know changing the way you sold abortions, a bit about the procedure. But what was that like for you? Describe the experience of running an abortion clinic. I don't have the words for that, Jonathan. Um, I was, I worked seven days a week. I was on, I took calls at night. If somebody called in the middle of the night and wanted to come in in the morning for an abortion, I didn't want to miss them. I was a miserable person. My son called me one time from college and was reading the newspaper to me, and I said, what are you doing? And I, he said, I'm reading the newspaper. You never take the time to sit down and read it. You would have thought that would have been a wake-up call, and in some ways it was, but I was running from my own pain. I was running, 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 and I was... But I will tell you this. I had doctors that were having affairs. I had women that were having affairs. Um... One of the abortionists' girlfriend wanted to come in and get on the table to have sex. Uh, it was a sick, sick group of people, and I was sick too. I was, but I, I was very, very, very harried. I mean, I, I didn't let myself think about anything. I did not give myself time to rest or to think or to do anything or to 
you know, I never cooked. I never, I was just running all the time. And when you're running all the time, you never have time to stop and think about your life or what you're doing or where you're going. Right. I was miserable, but, but I didn't have enough sense to know it. Or I couldn't stop to think about it. But, you know, I saw, I had nurses chasing, I had two chasing each other in the back room with exacto knives. They were mad at each other and they were going to kill each other. I mean, it was just horrible. And is that the impact of the work on the people? Like Dr. Bernard Nathanson has, has, has described similar things um, in his memoirs of, of the impact that the killing has on those who work in the industry. Would you say that the sort yeah. of things that you saw characterize the nature of that industry? You can't kill every day without it affecting you. Uh, they say, you know, I'll, I'm going to tell you, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but, you know, they would laugh and joke about... Um, Here's looking at you when an eyeball went through the tube. That's not normal behavior. Um, and one nurse committed suicide. And she worked with the biggest, baddest abortionist I've ever seen. He was, anyway, he was a character. But um, she committed suicide, and it was over her job. But, you know, when you go into a room and blood is splashing everywhere, and baby body parts are coming out of a body. You can't ignore it forever. Now, I trained my people to say, we're helping the woman, we're helping the woman, we're helping the woman. But we all knew what we were doing, and we all knew how bad it was. You said that when you started in the abortion industry, it was because you were in denial about your own abortion. And then you said that at certain at a certain point, you came to a realization about what abortion was, and you remained in denial, but you just remained very unhappy. What was it like the first time you saw an aborted baby and realized, even if you didn't admit it fully to yourself, realized what this was actually all about? It was probably when I was in the first clinic and before I really started going in the rooms, I had a woman that worked for me who came in one morning and said, I'm not staying. I had a nightmare last night. Those babies were sitting on the sink with their legs crossed. They were little cherubs, and they were all laughing and waving at me. And I can't put another one down the disposal. And I guess that was maybe my first wake-up call, but I still wasn't going in the rooms. I still wasn't seeing what was happening. I wasn't watching it. But when I got back there in it, when Dr. Johnson started working over there, I started going in the rooms with him, and I couldn't deny it. I couldn't deny it. I, But I still, at that point in my life, I could not admit that I'd had an abortion. I couldn't admit it to myself. So um, I just kept telling myself, you know, I'm I'm living the life of a feminist, but I'm not a feminist. I'm supporting my children. I'm taking care of my world alone. And that's what we're doing to help these women. I I told myself a lot of lies. I told myself lies every day to get through it. I know it's very, very difficult for you to talk about. We've talked about this before. But so many people believe the lies about what an abortion clinic is and what happens there and women's health care. And so many people think the you know photographs that pro-life activists use are lies. They think that, you know, we're talking about just a clump of cells. They think that, 
You know, an abortion clinic is a normal healthcare facility. Can you just describe some of the things that you saw and some of the stories that you experienced to give our listeners a sense of what really happens? Because you're one of the few people who worked in an abortion clinic uh, before leaving and eventually joining the pro-life movement as somebody, you know, on the other side. And you have this wealth of knowledge that, that, that other pro-life activists simply do not have access to. The thing that popped in my head when you said that was that the abortionist will kill the baby, but they don't care about the mother either. She's just another fee to them. You know, they make $50 minimum up to 50% of the fee. You know, a a second trimester abortion in California can be $12,000. They put $6,000 in their pocket. And when they destroy a woman, they don't seem to care about it either. Uh, and, And the one that pops into my mind is Cheryl, this, this model who came into the clinic and, you know, really, really cute, sexy little girl and jumped up on the table and told the doctor she wasn't wearing underwear and he did her pelvic and he sized her and and he said she was doable and, and he put her on the table and I was with him, in the room with him. And the first time he went in with the Beerhoff forceps, he pulled out a menum, which is, you know, the lining of the of the uh, pregnancy, and the second time he went in, he perforated her uterus and pulled her bowel out through her vagina. I have wondered and wondered and wondered about that. How did he so quickly, he had to miss the placement of the baby in order, the placement of her uterus in order to go through that wall and pull that bowel out so quickly. But he pushed it back in and he said, this is over, get her to the hospital. And he called a friend of his we did not take her to the closest hospital. We were right there by Parkland. We took her across town, across Dallas to Garland, to a hospital where no one would ask questions. And his friend, the surgeon, met me. I put her in my car. I took her across town. His The surgeon came out on the uh, emergency room deck or whatever it was and said, I am not covering for him. I am not covering for him. I am not covering for him. And here I am with this girl with an IV in her. Obviously, something's wrong. The ER people are trying to find out what's going on with her. This doctor is supposed to be my cover, and he's not my cover, and I don't know what to do. Anyway, I get her in, and about that time, the abortionist, Harvey Johnson, shows up, and he puts his hand, as he had done to so many people, this is what he did. He would put his hand on your neck, and he would start whispering to you. And he started whispering to that doctor. And I don't know what he did. Did he threaten him? What did he say to him? Because the doctor just calmed down. And they took that girl back to the operating room. And I went to the doctor's lounge and just sat. And uh, seven doctors operated on her. They made the notes that it was an abdominal pregnancy. There's no way he would have started that. He would have been able to tell an abdominal pregnancy would have been hard and nodding and stuff. It wouldn't have felt like a normal uterus. But they lied on the chart. They said it was an abdominal pregnancy. That girl left there with a resection bowel and a colostomy bag. Now, you've got a lawsuit bigger than Dallas, but you've got seven doctors swearing that it was an abdominal pregnancy and that he couldn't have done anything else about it. And then you've got him deciding that he's 
going to take care of this some way, so he starts dating this little 22-year-old so she won't sue. And sadly, she didn't. Wow. But they don't care about women. If they cared about women, they would say, you know, have you thought about giving life to this baby? They don't ever say that in an abortion clinic. That never, that's that's the enemy. Life is the enemy. You never bring it up. You never talk baby. You never talk birthday. There's certain words you never say. But I'm going to tell you something. That made me sick to my stomach. That one was the, probably the turning point for me. There were two turning points. And the other one was when we killed Cheryl. This was a beautiful woman. She had a 14 or 16-year-old, I can't remember, and she had a 2-year-old, and she was pregnant. And they were living together, and they came in, and she had a discount coupon. Or I gave her a discount coupon, I think. Anyway, they didn't have enough money, and it was like 600 or $700. She came in and paid her money. She was on that table. It looked like everything was fine, but she would not stop bleeding. And um, I was up, you know, cleaning out the office, and we were closing up for the night. And Harvey came back and got me and put his hand on my neck, as he was so prone to do when there was a problem, and took me back and said, she's hemorrhaged, but I think she's all right. And when we turned that corner, she was in a pool of blood in that bed. So, of course, I had him clean her up and get her out of there. Why in the world did you let her stay there like that? And he left. He was going to go out and have margaritas, and he told me to call him if anything happened. Well, I didn't go back to finish the office. I stayed back there, and her blood pressure was erratic, which would be an indication of bleeding. Um, and she finally stopped bleeding. We, I called Harvey. Couldn't get him. He wouldn't answer my calls. Couldn't reach him. And finally, about 10 o'clock that night, her boyfriend said, she's okay. Let me take her home. Well, I didn't know what else to do, and she had stopped bleeding. So... When I, I get a call about 4 o'clock in the morning, and um, it's Harvey saying she's dead. Her boyfriend had called the answering service. It didn't go to me. Harvey did get it, and he didn't have any of the history, and he told him. He said, she's cramping. He said, put her in a tub of hot water. Well, what that does is it opens up the uterus, and if there's a clot or something, usually it'll come out. But in this case, she had a cervical tear, and the last little bit of blood in her body drained out. And so he called Harvey back and said, she's not breathing, and he said, get her to Presbyterian. He took her to the hospital. And Harvey went over there, and he had just enough favors that no one called the press, no one called the police. That woman bled to death because he had better things to do. It would have been so simple to put her in the in the operating room. We could have even sutured that in the clinic, but right. he was gone. And that was a huge turning point for me. I thought, I'm complicit in this, and I can't do this. And then, then very quickly we were caught attempting to do abortions on women that weren't pregnant, and that was that was it. How did you get caught for doing that? We had a woman uh, who was a reporter who decided she wanted to do an expose on abortion clinics. And she and two other her friends went to the doctor to be certain they weren't pregnant and came in our clinic to see if we would attempt to do an abortion on them, even though they were not pregnant. And we did. (laughs) 
this this is what you do. If she's got a negative pregnancy test, you take her back, as we've already talked about this. You put her on the table. You do a sonogram. You show her a little blob. You say, see, there, there it is. You're pregnant. And then you get her money, and the doctor goes in, scrapes that more of the line of the uterus. And, um, and then who knows what really happens to her. Well, these women came in, and they were recording. They literally had recorders going and uh, actually had cameras going camera in her purse and then the abortion the uh, actually the sonogram tech that day said yep babe there it is you're pregnant why don't you just do it today and she got off the table and left but she did an expose for seven days and uh, that was my answer to prayer that God did not want me in the abortion clinic and, and that's when I left but the interesting thing is, when I left, they tried to blame everything on me, of course, and say it was all me. When you heard uh, about the Planned Parenthood expose in 2015 about selling baby body parts, was any of that happening while you were or while you were still in the abortion industry, or did that come later? No, it came later, and I'll say this. If we had known about it, we would have exploited that. We would have used it. But I did know about it because... I found out about Dr. 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 What's his name in Ohio? Um, Dayton. I'll think about it in a minute. But anyway, the pro-lifers, I had a pretty good relationship with those people, went up there a couple of times, loved them, wonderful people. You know, the people that do this, the most caring people in the world, they don't get paid for what they do. But the people standing in front of that abortion clinic noticed that the FedEx people was picking up what looked like refrigerated containers and recognize Martin Haskell. Martin Haskell is the one who perfected the partial birth abortion techniques, and I believe Dr. Haskell did that so he could harvest those organs with a live blood supply. Because remember, he would just let the baby hang out, and based on uh, Dr. Carpen in Houston, we found baby David, you know that that baby that's so mangled, it's on a lot of the... Uh, Photographs, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. He's holding the baby up, correct, in the photo? Yes, well, there's several of him, but right. he had, this baby had slits in his back where his kidneys had been removed. So they've been doing it for a long time and just didn't get caught. Nobody caught on to it, but it was happening. I had no, I had no idea that, that the baby in that photo you're talking about, the aborted baby who's being held up, actually had slits in his back. Baby David from Dr. Carpenter in Houston, yeah. a guy named Chad Chadwick caught him, found him. He was walking around the building praying and saw some buckets at the back door and knew he was trespassing but decided to check it out and found Baby David. Yes. Yes. What? Gosh, that's been years ago. When all of the... Uh the abortion workers and the members of the abortion industry say, and and I know the answer to this, but I'd like to hear your perspective. When they say that the pictures of aborted babies used by pro-life activists are, are, are false, it's doctored imagery, they know they're lying, right? Yes, they do. You have to put every single baby back together to be sure you've got all the parts. If you leave a little arm or a leg or part in there, you're going to have an infected mother. And you don't need another lawsuit. So you check for part. I mean, they don't check for it to protect that mother. They check for it to protect themselves. Right. But they 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 put them on a uh, an underpad and construct put the body back together. So it's you're sure it's all there. 
And I've seen that in more than one clinic. How How is it possible to psychologically handle seeing the babies get put back together on a tray? I've You've partially explained this just in explaining the reaction of, of many of, of the workers. And I've, I've written about this myself, um, the reaction of those who actually see the babies. But what was your experience? The people who work in abortion clinics are very hurt people. A lot of lesbians, a lot of rape victims, a lot of incest victims, a lot of post-aborting women. And they're so hurt, they can't see beyond their own pain, but they can't admit their own pain. So seeing something like that, they almost take glee in it. Uh, that they can do it. It's it's very sick. It's very sick. It's very. Uh, they treat it like it's a normal everyday procedure to see that. But just like that girl that told me that the little cherubs were cross their legs waving at her, uh, you can't do that forever. It affects you, and and become very. I don't know. Uh, so hardened, it's terrible. So so very hardened, it's very very sad. So you kind of explained what some of the catalysts were to leaving, but how did you get out of the abortion industry after being in it for so many years? Well, um, I'm sure I've told you that the man, I know I told you before that um, a man, we were trying to expand the three clinics and this man came in to help us in our expansion, we thought. He told us he could solve our problems and help us get this expansion going by meeting with him an hour a week for th- for four weeks. And I started meeting with him, and, and that's when he shared Christ with me. And I prayed to receive Christ. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And um, I didn't expect change. I didn't expect anything. But this man, Jack Shaw, had told me that he would be leaving in 30 days. And I thought, and he was going to take somebody with him. And I thought, great, he's going to take that crazy girlfriend with him, and my life will be perfect but um, that's when the expose on doing abortions on women that weren't pregnant happened 27 days after that man came in. And that was my clear answer. To, I had prayed at the end of the first day after I met with him and prayed that prayer and asked Jesus into my heart, Lord, if there is a Lord, if this is not where you want me, hit me over the head with a two-by-four. Because I went back to the abortion clinic expecting no change. But when I got there, there was a change, and I started talking those women out of having abortions. And at the end of that day, rather than saying, isn't this great, I saved three babies, I said I lost $75 because my commission was $25 for each one. So that's when I prayed that prayer, Lord, if there is a Lord, if this is not where you want me, hit me over the head with the two-by-four. And the two-by-four was the expose by Channel 4, the CBS affiliate in Dallas, that we did abortions on women who were not pregnant. And... um I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know how I was going to make it. I didn't know how I was going to take care of two kids. But I knew I was not supposed to be in the killing business. And I walked out actually expecting him to pay me just $5,000 a month for a year for my part of the abortion clinics. And that would just get me through the next year. You know, I'd been making ten, twelve, or more thousand dollars a month. So that was the plan. But, of course, he never did that. He never made the first payment. And so I had bought a butcher shop in Richardson, which is a suburb of Dallas, and I went out there. It was the only way I had to make a living, and it was losing money. I was not making money in it. I bought it for the wrong reasons. I bought it for a man I was dating who wanted it, and 
uh, you know, which was a cash cow. But I went out there, and that was my wilderness, that cooler where I was screaming, God, 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 God. And uh, he was showing me that he could take care of me in uh, ways that I would never have expected. And uh, walking me through learning who he was. Um, He put people around me that loved the Lord and uh, kept me on the right path because the abortionists were still coming asking me to go to work for them and asking me, one asked me to go back to New York, one asked me to, you know, they just, I was being bombarded with abortion, abortionists asking me to go back into the business. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't. And uh, it wasn't even, it wasn't, it wasn't even flattering at that point for all that. It was just, oh, leave me alone. And um, it was a really tough 18 months. Yeah. And uh, I had two kids in college. They had been getting, you know, they had both new cars, $1,000 a month allowance, blah, 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 blah. They had to go. Thank God my son saved his money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he took care of us. Anyway, uh, learning to live with just the Lord was just really, you know, their health department's coming by. You have to put a new floor in. You've got to do this, blah, blah, blah. Um, the electrical company comes by. They turn your, going to turn your electricity off at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it, at 2 o'clock, somebody walks in and says, I ha- understand you have a $900 need. It was just amazing how God provided for me in ways that, of course, I would never have thought before. But he did. And then um, about 18 months when I, I guess I was at the bitter end of it, uh, he allowed me to go to work for two of the men who had been part of the team. That One church was busy praying me out. And two of the guys were real estate developers, and they offered me a job. And I took it. And uh, that was a different experience because it was learning to work in a, a completely Christian environment. But... Um, it was a wonderful experience, and two godly men, and one of them still texts texts me every a Christian a, a scripture every Sunday. Anyway, um, I walked out to that, and then when I was literally in the working as a leasing agent in the real estate business, well, I need to go back. Um, I was in the abortion. I was in the the butcher shop, and this guy um, in Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary students. Uh, wash windows for a living. They make their living washing windows, commercial windows. And this guy came in and washed my windows. And I was taking evangelism explosion at church. And I thought, you know, you're supposed to try your testimony on somebody new. And I thought, well, he's safe. He's a Christian. He'll be okay. And so I t- gave him my testimony in five minutes or less. And his mouth dropped and he didn't say a word. And I thought, gosh, I guess I can't tell anybody if I can't tell him. Anyway, he came back a couple of days later and he said, when you told me that story, I couldn't believe it. I work with the Dallas Right to Life, and we've been praying for somebody to come out of the abortion business. Would you talk to us? Well, you've got to remember where I was, Jonathan. At that time, I was scared of pro-lifers. I thought they were all crazy because, you know, the only experience I'd had were people screaming at me. And with fear and trepidation, an attorney and the man who led me to Christ, I met with them. And uh, long story short, my first step out into politics was 14 months after I came out of the abortion business. And um, so after that, how did you end up in the, in the pro-life movement? That must have been 
like quite a quite a journey to go from working in that atmosphere to to working in in the pro life movement, and and you became connected to to Joe Scheidler and and so many uh, of of the pro life activists. So what was what was that like? How did you end up in in the pro life movement? Well, it started with that testimony before the legislature the first time, and then I was scared to death, but. I testified, and I did exactly what I thought the Lord had called me to do. And then when I left there, people started calling me, asking me to speak for them. So, you know, it was I was really rough in the beginning, but it was Texas people, and they would call me. And I, I spoke there on like a Wednesday, and on that Friday night, I spoke the first time at church. And it started, I'd say, okay, once a week, twice a week, three times a week. And then it started getting more often, and then, you know, Joe Scheidler called me, and uh, what a character. What a wonderful man. Yeah, he is. And his wife. Yeah. And um, anyway, he called me and got me on the abortion providers, and people started seeing me, and then more people started calling. And, you know, and then a speaking agency called, and before you knew it, I was out on the road doing it. Um, one year I was home about 30 days, too much. But, you know, I loved the work. I loved the people. And um, and I still do. I still do. And, and I've tried, you know, I've done different things, but I think that this movement is the most loving, caring group of humans in the world because they're doing it basically for other people. They're not doing it for themselves. None of them are. Not one of us. And, um, it, you know, they just take care of people in different ways. And it's amazing to me to see how God has put it all together, but I don't understand why I don't understand why it goes on, and I don't understand what happened to me. You know, um, I took this money because we had defunded Planned Parenthood in Texas, and I was absolutely certain that the I would be the only pro-life group taking the money, and I was. And we were the only group with multiple providers. And they, uh, I mean, day one, they started in on me, and it was uh, the abortion providers and the abortionists and the Texas Tribune and the Texas Observer and Representative Sarah Davis, the only Republican pro-choice legislator in Texas, and, I mean, they told me they were going to get me. They set up open records requests on everything I did, and the state gave me the money July 2016, and April 2018 told me how to do it. And we had not done anything wrong, and we had not stolen any money or taken any money or done anything wrong, but we had not used the accounting system that they really wanted us to. And um, they renewed our contract September 1 and canceled it October the 12th. And the only thing that happened in that period of time was that the Texas Observer and the Texas Tribune did another article talking about how horrible we were. Right. We had 33 providers, and they were only counting the people from 12. It looked like we weren't seeing anyone. We were probably seeing, you know, probably hitting close to our numbers, but... It was just really hard, Jonathan. This has been the hardest part of the pro-life movement I've been in because it's constant attack. They broke into our office every day for six weeks. For months, they broke in every week. Uh, Every time you walk out, I mean, one of my grandchildren said to me, are you going to jail? No. (laughs) But, you know, the way they make it look, I'm like I'm a crook. And uh, with... um everything that you've seen and everything you've experienced, the last question I want to ask you is, is you have an opportunity to address all the listeners, you, your experience, as you've just spent 45 minutes explaining is, is, is a very unique one. What's the one thing you want people to learn from your experience? 
Lord? That's a, that's a loaded question. First of all, that it is life. And all of us, all of we pro-lifers are in this for the baby. But the woman is the decision maker. And when we reach the woman, we can save the baby. Sometimes I think we have our focus on the wrong thing. We forget that she is the one who's hurting and who needs our love to help her save that baby. And I've seen that over and over in this clinic. This morning, you know, we had like eight pregnant women in. And you can look at them and you can see the difference in them. You can see those that are holding their tummy and loving the baby and you can see those that don't want anything to do with it, that have twisted faces and um, hurting hurting women. And we have a lot of work to do. But the other thing, there's no one thing I can say, Jonathan. The other thing is we are a hurting nation from abortion. If there are over 60 million abortions reported, and remember, I knew and Dr. C. Everett Coop and um, Dr. Vincent Rue found that 50% of abortions in 87, 88 were not reported. But we are a hurting nation from abortion, and we are not just, women are not the only ones hurting. Men are hurting. And we need to speak words of love to open their hearts so they can be healed because they're hurting. And I believe when the post-aborted men and women who've experienced abortion finally stand up and say it was the worst thing that ever happened to me, then this nation can start to see. And as you know, we're seeing the children and our youth become more and more pro-life because they know they could have been aborted. And I think we have an opportunity to end abortion, but we need to end it by regulating them to the point of, uh, you know, when we did that in Texas, out of the 41, uh, only 21 survived. So regulating them, making them take care of the women a different way, making them subject to allowing the pregnancy centers to do the ultrasounds and other things can really save a lot of lives. There are ways to put abortion clinics out of business by simply serving that woman. Well, I'm kind of woman, pro-woman right now, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story. Thank you for what you do, Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, that was former abortion worker and now pro-life activist Carol Everett, who works in Texas at the head of a network of life-affirming nonprofits called the Heidi Group. We hope you enjoyed this conversation or felt educated by it, and we hope you'll head over to LifeSite News and check out more news articles and columns. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.